Hello, and welcome to our virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World series. I'm Tony Ganser, afternoon host for Northeast Ohio NPR station, WCPN Ideastream. Thanks for joining us. The Arab uprisings of 2011 sent shockwaves through North Africa and the Middle East. From Tunisia to Cairo to Bahrain bubbled a groundswell of protest against autocracy and repression. As Egypt's Hosni Mubarak lost control, for a time, it looked like something similar might happen in Syria. But there, President Bashar al-Assad responded to dissent with violence, mass arrests, and a bloody civil war that continues to destabilize lives across the region and beyond. An estimated nearly 600,000 people have died. And one expert notes some 12 million people have been displaced. That's more than half the country's pre-war population. Syria is a confluence of humanitarian crisis, geopolitical crisis, and begs the question, what can be done after a decade of tragedy? Our guest tonight is an expert on Syria. We're pleased to welcome back to the City Club Robert Ford, former United States ambassador to Syria from 2011 to 2014. Ambassador Ford was the State Department lead on Syria, proposing and implementing policy and developing common strategies with European and Middle Eastern allies to try to resolve the Syria conflict. He first addressed the City Club in June 2012 and discussed the state of the crisis at that time, the role uh, the United States was playing then, and how ultimately the solutions to the crisis need to come from Syrians themselves. Ambassador Ford, uh, we also want to note, is the recipient of the Secretary's uh, Service Award, the U.S. State Department's highest honor, as well as an annual Profile and Courage Award for a stout defense of human rights in Syria. Currently, he's senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. That is quite the introduction. Ambassador, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions, and we hope you do. You can text them to 330-541-5794. It's on your screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet questions or comments at the City Club. I will try to work as many as I can in as our conversation develops. Usually these conversations are high level, but if there's something you want us to spend a little more time on or explain, please do point that out. I will uh, factor that into the conversation. So, Ambassador, uh, after that introduction, obviously we have a decade of, of multiple um, phases, I guess you could say, uh, of the crisis in Syria Maybe can you just tell us where we are now? Is uh, This is not a active war zone, so to say, in Syria as it once was, or, or is it? Uh, since I last talked to the City Club nine years ago, the situation on the ground is dramatically different. Uh, there is still occasional fighting. The country is not fully at peace, uh, but the level of fighting is dramatically less than it had been. The Syrian government, President Assad, has largely won the war. When I say won, uh, some people in Washington really object to that. Uh, but Assad has uh, gained a military balance 
in Syria that he where he's uh, the strongest and he will not be forced from the presidency. I mean, he's going to stay. And that was his ultimate objective. So for him, he won. Uh, there are still um, multiple smaller conflicts going on. There are about a thousand American troops deployed in Eastern Syria. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing there. I hope we get a chance to discuss that. Turkey has troops in Syria. Iran has troops in Syria. The Israelis regularly bomb Iranian and Syrian positions uh, almost weekly. And so while the conflict has scaled down, uh, it's not finished yet. Well, what is the conflict now? Because it seems like at one time, especially in those early days, it did look like this was protest versus regime, a la mm -hmm. the Arab uprisings as seen in other countries. But soon this became a battleground uh, for, for proxies. And, and as you mentioned, Iran, um, uh, Russia, uh, Turkey, all have interests in Syria. Um, and, and new players even developed, uh, you know, leading to the so-called Islamic State. So what is the conflict now? Is it still largely a proxy war or, or is it something different? There are elements of a proxy war, certainly. Uh, it's not only a proxy war. Um, Russia, uh, Iran, Turkey, and the United States all have their favorite militias and they arm them and support them. Uh, but they do that because their own forces are also in the country. And I don't think the conflict is going to end until most of these foreign forces withdraw, particularly the Americans and the Turks, the Syrian government. And remember I said, it's not leaving. Uh, the Syrian government wants the Russians in the country. The Syrian government wants the Iranians in the country. So much of the fighting that remains is the Syrian government trying to reestablish control over uh, parts of the country where the Americans uh, proxy is operating. These are mostly uh, a Syrian Kurdish militia. And uh, also the Syrian government is still attacking far northwestern Syria, which is basically under Turkish control um, with a Syrian militant organization operating on the ground. That's where most of the fighting is now. Russia being a member of the UN Security Council uh, has been a pretty strong um, chip, I guess, in, in Bashar al-Assad's pocket throughout this. Mm -hmm. uh, do you attribute Russia um, mostly to uh, Bashar al-Assad's longevity throughout this crisis, or is it not so much about external actors and more on just sheer will and, and brutality of the regime? Both certainly contributed, but the, uh, ex the extensive Iranian intervention, the Iranians sent tens of thousands of fighters into Syria, both Iranian fighters as well as Iraqi fighters. Uh, some of the same people that are shooting at the Americans in Iraq have been fighting in Syria on behalf of the Assad government. Uh, and the Iranian and Russian interventions together really saved Bashar al-Assad. Had they not intervened, 
I think Assad would have eventually lost a war of attrition. There still would have been many deaths, would have been a lot of fighting, a lot of destruction. But I think in the end, Assad's government would have collapsed or struck a deal, perhaps. Um, but he didn't uh, because of this foreign intervention on his behalf. I think a lot of people who follow Syria, even casually, might throw up their hands at some point and say, how is this still going on? And and when you talk about Iran being involved, Russia being involved, the United States in some form being involved, um, you know, as I said in the introduction, it begs the question, uh, what is what is the the end goal? Is this just territory, you know, for other conflicts, or or does anyone actually care uh, about the crisis and the tragedy that is that has taken place? Stephen A. Cook had an article uh, from early last month. Nobody knows why Syria matters uh, was the uh, title of that, and that seems like a um, a very cold um, title, but at the same time. How is this still going on when we have facts about, you know, so many lives lost and refugees and what are we doing? So um, with all due respect to Stephen, who's a very bright guy, and he has a great sense of humor. He's a lot of fun to have drinks with at the end of the day. Uh, but Stephen's a bit flip in the title. Um, his question, nobody knows why it, why it matters. Uh, actually, it matters a lot to a country like Turkey, for example, which shares... Uh, a 700-mile border with Syria. It would be like saying nobody cares about Mexico. Well, wait a minute. The Americans have a long border with Mexico. We care. Uh, and the Turks do care about Syria. They care a lot. Uh, Russia cares. Syria is the Russia's, the Russians' closest ally in the Middle East. Uh, and so they care a lot. And in fact, I think it would be fair to say that Vladimir Putin's successful intervention on behalf of the Syrian government has raised Russian influence in the region and has raised Putin's credibility as a friend indeed when your ally is in need. Uh, and that matters also. So uh, the Russians and the Turks do care. Um, Stephen's question would be right if you ask the American attitude about Syria. Why does anyone in America care about Syria. You know, the only reason really we ever cared deeply was because of ISIS, because of the Islamic State and its murder of Americans and its terrorist attacks in places like Europe and the lone wolf attacks that it inspired in places like uh, California and Texas. That's why we cared. And that's why we originally sent troops. ISIS lost all of its territory uh, two years ago. And so I think it is fair to ask, what are we still doing there? Uh, why do we care? Um, but I wouldn't ask that question of Russia and Turkey. We do have a question starting, which is great. Uh, so we'll fold them in here. And this question is related to what we're talking about, about how is this still going on? Why hasn't Bashar al-Assad paid any real price uh, for what many describe as atrocities, uh, especially against his own people, uh, the use of chemical weapons and, and gassing, torture, uh, mass arrests, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, the Syrian government's brutality, I think, is unprecedented since the Second World War. 
I would be very hard pressed to think of another government that has used chemical weapons, that has used uh, torture and extrajudicial killing on an industrial scale, the way the Assad government has done. I, I, even Saddam Hussein wasn't like this. I mean, he was certainly not a nice man. Uh, but the Assad government has gone the extra step, if you will. Uh, why hasn't he paid a price? Well, he hasn't paid a price because he won. And uh, and that's the bottom line. There is no one who's going to go to Damascus and yank him out of the presidency's chair, throne, if you will, and uh, and send him to an international court for judgment. There isn't anyone, not the Americans, not the Turks, certainly not the Russians, not the Iranians. And so uh, I have to say, frankly, Syria breaks my heart. It's a tragedy. Um, and this is the reality. Assad's going to get away with it. It just drives me crazy to say that, but it's it's truth. If Assad won, does that mean everyone else has lost? Because it seems like uh, from the domestic uh, point of view, the cost of civilian loss of life and and their homes and structure, that's a loss. Um, uh, you know, the refugees which have, have flooded into Europe, uh, we can talk more about that later, but that's been a tremendous cost. And the international community in terms of legitimacy of, I, I think about R2P, the responsibility to protect, which at one time looked like it was gaining steam, that the international community might intervene to protect a, a civilianry uh, as, as was justified in Libya, for example, and yet Syria burned. Mm -hmm. So I would not say the Russians lost, I would say they won. I would not say the Iranians lost, I would say they won. Their goal was to maintain in power uh, their friend Bashar al-Assad, and they did. So I wouldn't say they lost. The Americans decided, frankly, Barack Obama decided uh, that we could live with Assad, and so the Americans didn't really lose. The Americans were worried about ISIS, about the Islamic State. They got pounded. Uh, they're not able now to threaten us. And so I wouldn't say the Americans lost. The Americans won, but the Americans won only just one aspect of this, the bigger aspect, the whole of the country of Syria. We didn't win, uh, but we weren't trying to. And uh, Turkey... Turkey has lost a lot, uh, but it still has troops in Syria. And uh, the economic relationship between Syria and Turkey, which was very close when I was ambassador there, a lot of Turkish products, a lot of Turkish exports to Syria, all of that is lost. Uh, so I think if I were to point at one single country that's a big loser, I would say it was Turkey. Uh, the questions are, are still coming, and, and this question is about refugees, so maybe we pivot mm -hmm. there right now. Um, as we mentioned, uh, a tremendous burden of refugees is being borne by Turkey uh, still, um, but uh, of course there was a huge migration toward Europe, uh, me being a follower of German news especially, that has influenced that mm -hmm. country's political debate immensely. Um, and it's very interesting coming to the end of the Merkel era, uh, what's going to happen there. Uh, so this question is is asking specifically what the U.S. can do for Syrian refugees, but I'm going to expand that to the quote-unquote West, 
what mm -hmm. what is the West's position uh, for Syrian refugees at this point in 2021? Western countries are basically trying to pretend the problem doesn't exist. Uh, actually, I guess I'm being unfair. The Western countries, the United States included, still provide a great deal of humanitarian aid funding, and I shouldn't discount that. Uh, the Biden administration just announced two weeks ago another $600 million, that's U.S. taxpayer money, $600 million to help Syrian refugees and internally displaced people who are still inside Syria, mostly in northwest Syria. Uh, the Americans have now, since 2012, given about $12 billion, that's billion with a B, uh, in humanitarian assistance. And that, again, is U.S. taxpayer money. So uh, it's not like the West and the United States haven't done anything. Um, but they haven't been able to remove Bashar al-Assad. They didn't really try. And uh, I think going forward, going forward, uh, there are two things that the West can do. First, they will have to continue uh, these financial contributions. And I don't see an end to it anytime in the foreseeable future. I just don't. Uh, the second thing, and I hope the Biden administration does this, is uh, to begin admitting Syrian refugees into the United States. When the Obama administration uh, left office in 2017, the year before 2016, the United States government admitted about 15,000 Syrian refugees. And the year before it had been somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000. These are not big numbers when you consider that there are 5 million uh, Syrian refugees, most of whom are in Turkey, uh, but there's still a lot in Lebanon, and the ones in Lebanon are in particularly dire circumstances. Uh, children freeze to death in the winter there, for example. Uh, and so I think human continued humanitarian assistance and beginning to admit more Syrian refugees is the most positive contribution we can make. Yeah, just this week, the Biden administration uh, bowed to pressure. Uh, it looks like they're increasing the cap of total refugees coming into the country to about 65,000, I think the number was, up from the total number of the Trump administration of 15,000. And in reporting here in Northeast Ohio, I know a number of organizations have been waiting to resettle Syrian refugees. Uh, but as you point out, that number is so small when you think about the UNHCR, UN's refugee agency, and these massive camps, entire villages have been relocated. Um, and, and to hear you say, essentially, we need to keep supporting that until something changes in the future, that that sounds um, uh, grim. Sounds yeah, grim and, and desperate and, and uh, almost as if that can't be the answer. I, I don't have an answer for the overall Syrian problem. No one does. Uh, Bashar al-Assad, frankly, does not want these refugees to come back. And he has said that uh, when asked, you know, Mr. President, a third of your country left. left. I mean, they're terrified of your government. His response was, well, those who stayed are good and we are a more homogenous. That was the word he used, homogenous society now. We're stronger. Doesn't sound like a president who's uh, 
willing to live and let live. It doesn't sound like a president who's ready to turn the page and move on. Uh, it sounds like a president who doesn't want them to come back. And the ferocious, brutal Syrian security services are, are known to arrest, particularly young men, uh, when they do come back into the country, which is why so very few ever do. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had been quoted uh, and and gave interviews when President Trump, then President Trump said he wanted to pull an American presence mm -hmm. out of Syria. You agreed with that. And in principle, yes. you've said a, a number of times this evening, too, that, that you're not sure uh, why they should be, why we should be there. Uh, so this question is, what do you think the Biden administration should be doing, if anything, in Syria outside of financial contributions, maybe uh, for the refugee issue? I think the Americans need to withdraw their forces. I don't understand why we have about 900 U.S. soldiers still in eastern Syria. ISIS is as defeated as they can make it. Uh, that's why they went there originally. And instead, now what's happened is a sort of mission creep. So they're not really there to fight ISIS. Uh, they're holding oil fields. Why are they holding oil fields? Well, they don't want Bashar al-Assad's government in Damascus to get the oil money. Uh, and the Americans are imposing heavy duty sanctions on the Assad government too. Uh, the Trump administration was trying to strangle the Syrian government economically, financially, and they did. They have inflicted a lot of pain on Syrian citizens in government controlled territories, about two thirds of the country. Uh, long gas lines, food prices have skyrocketed. Uh, unemployment is terrible. There's very little investment money to rebuild. There's a lot of rebuilding that has to be done. And uh, this is the Americans' goal is to sort of put financial pressure on the Syrian government, hold the oil fields, um, hoping that they're going to be able to extract from this ruthless dictator some kind of major political concession. Um, problem is, Bashar al-Assad doesn't give a damn about the economic welfare of his people. Same guy who bombs bakeries and hospitals and schools, uses chemical weapons. It's not reasonable. And so I think this is a failed strategy. It's costing us somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half to three billion, that's with a B, three billion dollars a year, and it's achieving nothing. And uh, I think, frankly, we could use that three billion to better affect somewhere else, whether at home or abroad. Um, I, it doesn't solve the refugee crisis, uh, but the American troops sitting over on the Syrian side of the Iraq border, they're not helping the refugees as it is. So I think there's a real rethink that needs to be done. Uh, maybe this is uh, too uh, complex a question, but how does Israel fit into this? Because it seems like having such instability right next door um, with the potential of, of still caches of chemical weapons, we're, we're not sure. Um, but but how does that factor into our calculus from the United States perspective mm -hmm. on on what we would need to do? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, there's no question that Assad still has chemical weapons. He still uses them occasionally. He doesn't need to use them as much as he used to, uh, but he still does sometimes. Uh, there are international monitor organizations that report on this. If you Google it, you'll find them. Uh, there's no question he has the chemical weapons, but 
But on the positive side for Israel, uh, largely with American help over the last decades, Israel is now the sort of regional superpower in the Middle East. It is uh, by far the strongest military power in the Middle East, by far. There's no one that even comes close. And so they are able to fly with impunity over Syria, and they do. Um, they were able to bomb with impunity in Syria, and they do. Uh, the Russians uh, don't get in their way. They have a deconfliction mechanism, actually, between Jerusalem and the Russian defense ministry in Moscow. Uh, the Russians don't oppose them. Maybe on some level, the Russians even sympathize a little with the Israelis. There's a whole complex relationship between Moscow and Jerusalem. Um, but the Israelis are able, essentially, to take care of themselves. I think it's important for the viewers tonight to understand American soldiers sitting in and around oil fields in eastern Syria are not doing anything against the Iranians. I'm going to say that again. They're not doing anything against the Iranians. It's the Israelis uh, and their air force that is dealing with the problem. They're doing it actually quite well. And, you know, we can take pride that the Americans helped build up Israel so that it can defend itself. And it is. Um, to to push back, maybe ask a provocative question: Is is that good for overall stability of the region? Um, that you have Israel as as a superpower, but we also kind of have the the ruins of these states uh, all around it: Syria, Iraq, uh, Iran, uh, being weakened to a certain degree. So I I don't think it's reasonable to expect that Syria is going to return to 100% normality or 100% peace in the next few years. I don't see it. I don't see how that would happen. Uh, instead, I think we're going to have to live with a, a certain low-level amount of conflict for a long time. Uh, and the Israelis are going to have to live with it. It's their neighborhood. Um, but it's not a problem that anyone can really fix. Uh, this question, uh, I can't confirm this, uh, so if, if you can uh, tell us that it's fake news, please do. I'm not implying, but uh, this person says they saw a story in the news that Saudi Arabia is planning to reopen its embassy in Damascus mm -hmm. okay, uh, with the intention of restoring diplomatic relations. What do you think uh, this will do uh, for the situation in Syria and beyond? So there are media reports coming out of the Middle East over the last couple of days. And I think there's a report in the Guardian uh, paper out of Britain, either today or yesterday, uh, reporting that there have been initial contacts between Saudi intelligence and uh, Syrian intelligence. Please remember, everyone, the Syrian state is basically an intelligence-run state. Uh, the secret police run it. So uh, it's, it's important if the Saudis have actually accepted those kinds of contacts. They have been um, under some strong encouragement from Russia to do that. Um, it's also notable that the Saudis are now meeting with the Iranians in Baghdad. Uh, there's a kind of an Iraqi mediation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I suspect that these talks between Damascus and uh, Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, um, also come with an Iraqi role 
Uh, Iraqis have good relations with Assad's government. They are now having pretty good relations with Saudi Arabia too. So one of the things that's happening in the region is that as the Americans talk about removing troops, reducing troops, um, the two opposing sides, the Iran camp and the Saudi Emirati Israel camp, um, they're actually now are beginning to have conversations between themselves about regional security. No big agreements yet, um, but conversations. I think, frankly, um, conversations are a good thing. And what does that indicate? Does that indicate the United States is um, not necessarily playing the role of um, of referee anymore? Yeah, that there there right. might be, yeah, yeah. It's it's not. And I think, frankly, at a certain point, we don't need to. Uh, we have a few key interests in the Middle East. We need, uh, for example, for terrorist groups. Uh, not to attack the United States. We want them contained. We want their recruitment on the ground in the Middle East undermined. We don't want them to threaten us. Uh, we want world markets to be able to access energy, hydrocarbons um, out of the Middle East, and particularly the Persian Gulf states. Uh, we don't have a lot of other big interests. Israel's security, I guess, would be a third one. But as I said, the Israelis are now a regional superpower and, and quite able to defend themselves. They even have nuclear weapons. So uh, it's not necessary for the Americans to try to micromanage the Middle East. And I think after we look at Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, uh, I think it would be hard to make a case that we do a good job of it. Are those official nuclear weapons yet or still the unofficial uh, nuclear weapons? I think weapons? Uh, the Israelis have simply declined to answer the question. Um, there's a saying in Arabic, uh, no answer is the answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this question is uh, a little in the weeds, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see here. What effect does a presidential election May 26th have uh, if anything, Syria's Supreme Constitutional Court accepted three applications out of 51 for candidates for president. Uh, I don't think the election means too much. It's not like there's a vibrant democracy in Syria. Uh, I'm sure President Assad will win handsomely. Um, in some of his previous elections, he's won over 96, 97 percent of the vote. Miraculous. Marvelous. Uh, I would expect we'll have a similar result here. It's not going to reduce the levels, the remaining level of conflict. It's not going to solve the issues about uh, the Syrian Kurds in northeastern Syria or this militant group under uh, a Turkish umbrella in northwestern Syria. It doesn't fix any of those problems. This question is, what do you make of the support for Assad uh, from uh, some on the American political left, uh, citing Tulsi Gabbard, for example? I'm going to be polite. Uh, I would say two things. Number one, uh, there is an absolutely uh, abominable 
effort to hide truth, such as the use of chemical weapons. Um, I don't really understand why, uh, but there are serious efforts, particularly among uh, elements of the American extreme left, to simply uh, excuse away or whitewash uh, war crimes committed by the Syrian government. It's, there's no good reason for it. Second, um, some people would like to make you believe that the Syrian uprising was always a choice between a dictator and a radical Islamic opposition. Um, I think that's exactly what Bashar al-Assad wanted to get, but especially, and I'm an eyewitness, I saw it myself with my own eyes, uh, in 2011 and 2012, and even into 2013, there was a broad um, Syrian opposition that wanted uh, not to impose an Islamic state, in fact, rejected an Islamic state, uh, wanted to create a situation where Syrians, whether they be Christians or uh, other Muslim uh, communities, Alawis, Shia, Sunnis, um, would all have equal civil rights and would be all treated fairly and equally. Um, it is regrettable that that opposition uh, was largely eradicated. I shouldn't say eradicated. It was largely um, marginalized by a combination of Islamic radicals on this side and the Bashar al-Assad government on that side. They were tacit allies. Uh, people like uh, Ms. Gabbard seemed to think that there was never another option, but I never saw her in Syria in 2011 or 2012 or 2013. I don't think she has a longer, deeper perspective on Syria. And as you pointed out before, there are international monitors for, for chemical weapons and mm -hmm. uh there's a, a new book that uh, is coming out from a Washington Post reporter yeah. about a, a CIA um, operative who was involved in the Sarin mm -hmm. program with uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad. Mm -hmm. um, just more proof that, that yes, this actually happened. Yeah, um, the book is uh, called Redline, and it's by a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, uh, Joby Wark. I've read it. It's, it's a very good, okay. very fast read. Two two time Pulitzer, I think. I'll, I'll give oh, okay. Shout -out. I only knew about one, but he's, <laughs> I could believe he get to. <laughs> um, I'll just say again, we do have a lot of questions coming in, uh, which is great, and and we'll keep working through those. If you have a question, you can text it to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. It's on your screen again three three zero. 5415794 you can also tweet it at the city club uh and i will work that in uh with our conversation with ambassador ford um this question uh reaching back to your 2012 uh, city club speech you said the solutions uh for this crisis have to come from syrians themselves do you still think that that is possible uh with where syria is today and and just how decimated the citizenry is. There'll have to be a foreign element just because there are foreign troops, American, Russian, Turkish, Iranian, on Syrian soil. So it's not, that wasn't the case so much in 2012. 
Uh, the Iranians came in big in 2013. The Russians came in big in 2015. The Americans came in big in 2015. The Turks came in big in 2015 and 2016. So in 2012, it was still largely a Syrian conflict only. I don't think, frankly, there's there's not a Syrian process that's going to end this anytime soon. There's, there isn't one even visible. The United Nations uh, has a special envoy, a career uh, Scandinavian diplomat named Geir Pedersen, very uh, creative, uh, very experienced. He's been trying to get the Syrians to work on a new constitution uh, for several years and has made I, I regret to say, uh, zero progress. Um, the, the key point here is that the Assad government is not willing to make concessions. Say that again. The Assad government is not willing to make any concessions. No power sharing, uh, no amnesties, nothing. And so those people who are still resisting it or have fled the country away from it, uh, have no incentive uh, to go home and to try to resume normal lives. There's nothing for them except the potential to be arrested and perhaps murdered in jail, as have been literally tens of thousands of other people. It seems, and, and please correct me if I'm reaching too far, but it seems because Russia has backed Assad that there isn't there aren't any mechanisms from the international governance point of view to impose anything on yeah, Syria right. to, to force change. So we're, we're kind of at this, the stalemate, I guess. Right. You asked uh, Tony about the responsibility to protect the R2P, which was a, a big effort among many countries, dozens and dozens of countries after the Rwanda uh, genocide. Yeah. And, when we tried to sort of work towards that in Syria, after we passed the several hundred thousand dead mark, uh, the Russians constantly vetoed resolutions in the Security Council. Russia has vetoed, I'm not making this number up, Russia has vetoed 16 different resolutions brought to the Security Council since 2012. Uh, it's, it's just gotten to the point where uh, Countries like Britain, France, the United States just stop trying because they know the Russians uh, will continue to veto. I used to say, well, let's try again. At least it will shame the Russians. And um, my colleagues who worked at the United Nations and who had more experience than I did with the Russians would say, um, Robert, you can't really shame the Russians. They are shameless. I think that's true. They'll lie. Uh, they're shameless. And very much like Bashar al-Assad that way, birds of a feather. So um, they have been able to block any kind of uh, international law sanctioned effort, um, which is why at a certain point, uh, the Obama administration decided to go around international law and try to uh, provide arms directly to certain moderate elements of the Syrian armed opposition as a way of trying to put pressure on Assad, but that too failed. So I, I don't see any way forward in this. I think, we, I, I think in the end, as unhappy as it is for many of us, 
we have to acknowledge that on his terms, Assad has won. So ex expanding on that, and, and maybe you'll just stick with what you just said, but this person is asking, so what then is the role that superpowers play in, in preventing or stopping conflict if Syria is kind of, you know, exhibit A? And I'll, I'll extend that question to say, is the Security Council just pretty much a moot point now that it's not accomplishing the goal that it was set up to do. So I think Syria could be an example of the emerging new world order, frightening as that is, uh, where if there isn't an agreement, first of all, the Americans cannot impose uh, their point of view. Uh, the Russians were able in Syria, for example, to block it quite well. Uh, there could well be other situations that become like Syria because there are many big countries now operating on the world stage. China, we haven't even mentioned, uh, India. Uh, and so uh, it's not, everyone isn't looking to the United States to fix every problem. And let's be honest, Americans at home don't really want to try to fix every problem in the world either. It costs a lot of money. People get killed. And you know we have enough problems here as we've just experienced with the pandemic in our public health system. So uh, if if the question is aimed at why can't superpowers fix everything, if they could agree, uh, then you would actually be able to get some some common action, perhaps. But more often than not, they don't agree. Um, the Biden administration is hoping, for example, that big countries on world stage now, China and the United States, Europeans, European Union maybe as a third, will all come to an agreement on the essentials of a climate change deal. I hope it works, and I hope it works better than uh, agreement among the major powers worked on Syria. Is that part of the reason that there hasn't been action in the International Criminal Court, for example? Yeah. The Russians veto any effort. But I mean, physically, I'm just talking about physically. Who would like go into Damascus and arrest Bashar al-Assad? Who? American Special Forces? Please, this is not Hollywood. Uh, the Russians? Absolutely not. They're his ally. There isn't anybody. So, but the Russians, even if there was that possibility, the Russians would veto it in the Security Council. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose on a certain level, Vladimir Putin doesn't want to be put on trial someday in the International Criminal Court either. I would. I would imagine not. Um, this person is saying, uh, "I would like to hear Ambassador Ford speak more broadly about how U.S. foreign policy has evolved, and maybe how the State Department is changing under Biden, even though it's very early in the administration." So the Biden administration is has changed many things, but not all things, of the Trump administration's foreign policy. So, for example, there's a big accent in the Biden administration about working closely with allies. Uh, and so you see, for example, uh, the president's first telephone calls when he came into office in January uh, were to key European and Asian allies. The first official visitor from abroad, uh, from a foreign government to Washington to meet the president was from Japan 
a longtime ally of the United States with whom we have a mutual defense treaty. Not an accident, because who is the uh, American-Japanese alliance aimed at these days? China. So um, similarly, uh, Secretary Blinken uh, regularly talks and meets in groups uh, with European NATO countries. It's not an accident. It's very intentional. Um, again, with the idea of reconsolidating the NATO alliance to deter Russia. Uh, these kinds of things were largely absent uh, from much of the Trump administration's day-to-day uh, -day foreign policy. So that's a big change. Uh, second, the Biden administration on the Middle East specifically uh, wants to reestablish the nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, the Trump administration believed that if you impose enough sanctions, uh, eventually you will extract um, concessions from the Iranian government. It's very much the same thinking that they applied to Syria. Enough financial pressure and they'll crack, and then by golly, you'll get concessions. Um, didn't work in Syria, hasn't worked in Iran, just the opposite. The Iranians have ramped up their nuclear program, and they're actually closer now to getting a bomb than they were before. So the Biden administration is going back to the uh, earlier Obama administration strategy of trying to negotiate a deal with uh, some means of verifying. International Atomic Energy Agency monitors. Um, the last thing I would say is uh, some things the Biden administration hasn't changed. Um, for example, tariffs on Chinese products, uh, imports from China haven't changed. Uh, the Biden administration's language on things like Ukraine is still um, very tough. You know, Trump would often say nice things about Putin. He'd never say anything bad about Putin. But a lot of his administration's policy on Ukraine was actually pretty tough. They talked about sending weapons. They did send weapons to Ukraine. Um, as much as the president liked Putin, uh, we were still arming an enemy. So... Um, the Biden administration is sort of keeping that without the nice, sweet language about Vladimir Putin. Um, not that. In, in places like Ukraine, China, I haven't seen a huge, huge change yet. You you mentioned uh, that we had not talked about China, and, and now you've got me curious. Uh, is, is there any Chinese presence uh, with the Syrian conflict, I know they're very active with soft power promotion in Africa, mm -hmm. but I had not thought about it in terms of Syria. Well, the Chinese don't have military forces in Syria, not like Iran does, not like Turkey does, not like the Americans do or the Russians. Um, Chinese do business still with the Syrian government, and they have promised, but I emphasize the word promised, uh, substantial help for Syrian reconstruction. But I've not seen actual Chinese projects begin. Um, and so I think for the most part, the Chinese are standing back a bit. You know, when they do projects, they like to send many, many Chinese citizens to work on these projects. They don't use a lot of local labor. They send their own workers. Uh, it's probably not particularly safe for Chinese workers yet in many parts of Syria. So, uh, but in other parts of the Middle East, the Chinese are becoming increasingly active. 
so you think that would be an extension of their activity in Africa, for yeah. example, building highways? So, things for like example, that. there's this very large Chinese infrastructure project called the Belt and Road Initiative, extend rail lines and ports and transportation nodes all the way from China towards Europe. Um, Syria has signed up. Uh, Iran has signed up. Iraq has signed up. Uh, lots of Turkey has signed up. There are lots of countries in the Middle East that are signing up. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, what do you think uh, the Biden administration might change about NATO and, and NATO's activity vis-a-vis um, -vis Syria, but but the region as a whole? There's a lot of attention on Afghanistan now and the withdrawal of troops. Um, maybe can you, you talk broadly about the engagement in the region? So I think uh, NATO is a fundamental pillar for the Biden administration's foreign policy, and they will uh, regularly consult with NATO. Uh, they'll try to build consensus with, in NATO for certain actions. I can imagine there may be a little pushing and shoving at times, uh, but that's normal. I would call that day-to-day -day diplomacy, in fact. Um, with respect to NATO in the Middle East, of course, the Americans are withdrawing from Afghanistan, and I'm sure the NATO uh, elements that are in Afghanistan with us will also withdraw. For one thing, they depend heavily on the Americans for logistics, for their supplies. Uh, once we're gone, their logistics would be very difficult, their supplies would be very difficult, so they'll have to leave. By contrast, the Americans so far are keeping a training and uh, support mission, assistance mission in Iraq, not a big one, there are about 2,500 American soldiers who are training uh, the Iraqis and also the Iraqi Kurdish uh, self-defense force, Peshmerga, some militia basically. Uh, so we're providing assistance, equipment, training, how to use it, um, how to manage logistics systems, trying to train the Iraqis so that one day we hope they can do their own logistics. Um, there's a NATO element also in Iraq with us. That NATO element is actually bigger than the American presence. There are about 4,000 uh, soldiers from NATO, NATO countries, not the United States, um, with us in Iraq. And I think as long as we stay in Iraq, I think that NATO element will stay and there is a possibility that NATO will agree to increase it so that we might take a few more American soldiers out of Iraq and they would be replaced uh, by European soldiers from NATO countries. Interesting. Um, maybe can you talk a little more about uh, Kurdish independence um, in, in relation to Syria? Is that a, a foregone conclusion now, uh, given the instability in Syria and, and the Turkish posturing uh, along the border? So I teach at Yale University now, and uh, today we did a big conference at Yale midday about uh, the future of the Kurds in the Middle East. Ah, wow. And um, I, I think if you uh, Google Jackson Institute, Yale University, you can find it because uh, they recorded it, I know. That's um, so a couple of quick things on the, on the issue of Kurdish independence. Number one, uh, there is absolutely no agreement within the region about Kurdish independence. So that not only would Turkey object, and Turkey would object very strongly, uh, but so would 
uh, Iraq, so would Syria, so would Iran, uh, frankly, so would Russia. And the only countries that really would be in favor be the United States and maybe some, maybe, maybe, some European countries. Um, it's not a very good beginning. It almost certainly a unilateral Kurdish declaration of independence um, would trigger serious fighting. Um, might even, in a sense, shake up the Middle East so that uh, Turkey, Iran, and Syria are all on the same side, um, along with the government in Baghdad. There's a, a city in Iraq, Tony, that's very sensitive called Kirkuk. It's, in, um, it's right on the borderline between Arab areas and Kurdish areas. And uh, that would be a flashpoint. There's been fighting around Kirkuk in the past, for example, in 2017. And uh, almost certainly would be again when I uh, met the then Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi in 2018 and asked him why they didn't accept Kurdish independence in 2017. He said, well, because the Kurds seized Kirkuk and we're not going to let them have it. So uh, I think Kurdish independence is far off. And I have to say, um, Kurds have been wonderful friends of the United States over the years. And when I worked in Iraq for five years, uh, we regularly went up to Iraqi Kurdistan and met the leadership there. And they're, they're very, they've always been very uh, warm in their relations with the United States. But uh, independence is going to be a very difficult thing to achieve. It's, it seems like such a shame that you know, we're talking about the failures of the international system in, in terms of preventing uh, what we've seen in Syria, and yet it's nation states that are preventing uh, much, much development with uh, Kurdish independence. Hmm. Uh, I, there's a regional issue, uh, and that is the biggest thing. There are also questions about economic viability. Uh, the Iraqi Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds, um, do have large oil reserves, but it's not clear that that alone would be enough to make them a viable economy. Uh, there's a real problem with corruption in Iraqi Kurdistan. There's a big problem corruption in all of Iraq, yeah. most countries of the Middle East, frankly. Um, but it's a big problem in the Iraqi Kurdish areas. It hinders a lot of uh, economic growth pro uh, projects. I mean, if you go to the capital of Erbil, it's a beautiful city. Um, but there's an unemployment problem, pretty serious one. Hmm. Uh, we're we're coming to the end of the hour, Ambassador. This has been a, a great conversation, but I want to throw it to you just uh, one last time. Is there anything you think viewers should keep in mind uh, as we still don't have a resolution in Syria and we're watching the region uh, very closely for what's going to happen next? So we've been talking about Kurds. I'd like to make a point to the viewers about the American relationship, not with the Kurds in Iraq, but with the Kurds in Syria. And we uh, joined one particular Syrian Kurdish militia in the fight against ISIS. And those Syrian Kurdish militia fighters were terrific. Uh, they took a lot of casualties, about 10,000 casualties in the victory against ISIS. Uh, they were the ones on the ground with a few American special forces advisors and helpers. Uh, but they were the ones who bore the heavy brunt of the ground fighting. 
the American Air Force was up in the air bombing with our precision weapons. Uh, but the house-to-house fighting, and there was a lot of it against ISIS, uh, that was, for the most part, these Syrian Kurdish militia fighters. Many people say to me, why, why don't we stay to help them? We owe them. And I think this, this makes me uncomfortable. Um, we never promised the Syrian Kurds that we would stay indefinitely. And they have a political project, perfectly reasonable. Um, everyone should have the right to have a political project. But it doesn't mean that we have to support it. That's a different question. We're our own country, United States. We have our own needs. We have our own interests. Um, yes, they did help us against ISIS, but they didn't do that as a favor. Uh, they did that because ISIS was in their communities and they wanted to throw them out. Perfectly understandable. Um, they were in my community. I'd want to throw them out too and I'd take help to get it. But they did that not as a favor to us. They did it because they had an interest and we had an interest. So we worked together. Uh, but going forward, going forward, uh, it's not clear that our future and their future should be linked. I recall. Uh, George Washington, uh, in his second administration, 1793, there's a big argument between his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, and his Vice President, John Adams, about what to do in the war between Britain and France. And Thomas Jefferson said, well, the French helped us in the American Revolution. We couldn't have won without them. We have to help the French. And John Adams said, wait a minute. That's not really our fight. That's between the British and the French. That's, I mean, that's not vital for us. And George Washington, if you recall, in his farewell address said, we need to be careful of getting involved in other people's battles. Um, he called it entanglements. I think we should avoid getting entangled at this point in Eastern Syria. We don't have a vital interest there now. Well, thank you for that thought and many thoughts over this hour, Ambassador. I really appreciated the conversation. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us for tonight's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World Forum. We have been talking with Robert Ford, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute, former United States Ambassador to Syria. Happy Dog Takes on the World is presented with the support of an anonymous donor. It's a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, hopefully we'll be back there soon, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and IdeaStream. We sure do appreciate their partnership. I also want to express my appreciation for the help of the City Club's Director of Programming, Stephanie Jansky. She's always brought energy and enthusiasm for this Happy Dog collaboration and supporting important community conversations just like this. Thank you. All of the City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week, thanks to generous support from Bank of America, Key Bank, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can find out more about supporting the City Club at cityclub.org. I am Tony Ganser. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Our forum is now adjourned. Have a good night. <laughs>